Hey useful idiots, for Thanksgiving we're unlocking part one of the Norman Finkelstein interview. For part two, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper. And I'm Mary Matek. Now, happy Thanksgiving. By the time that you've seen this, you'll already have celebrated that very problematic holiday. So happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, this week, we are not going to be doing the four food groups that we usually do, but we're not going to leave you uh, unsatisfied customers because we really care about our Useful Idiots community. Luckily, Norman Finkelstein is as prolific a speaker as he is a scholar. So we have an extended interview with him that we recorded two weeks ago, but we have not yet released. All right. Without further ado, this is Norman Finkelstein, our bonus interview with him. And Norman is the author of the forthcoming book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It. Welcome, Norman. So excited to have you back on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm always happy to be on the Katie and Aaron show, or Aaron and Katie. I'm not, I don't know which is... Definitely Katie and Aaron, if we're going to be calling it that. Yeah, this is Useful Idiots, but we love having you on this show, and of course on the Katie Helper show. And let's just start talking about the biggest news, uh, which is the midterms. What are your thoughts? Any thoughts, reflections on that? Well, I do have a reflection. I always like to admit to my fallibility. I did think it would be much worse because of the inflation. Uh, the inflation is so out of control and so, in my opinion, underplayed in the news for a ordinary person like myself who doesn't have a, subst- a substantial or significant income. Uh, I would say in the last year, for ordinary things you purchase in the supermarket, the inflation was 50 to 100 uh, percent. Some items doubled. You know, a bag of pretzels, which was 99 cents, is now $1.99. And some things went from uh, $0.50 cents to a dollar. Now, I'm, of course, significantly older than the both of you. I have no recollection at all ever in my lifetime of an inflation of this magnitude. Again, I'm not going to parse the statistics. I'm saying as a personal experience, I've never seen anything like this. So it did come as a surprise to me that people were, were able to look past that and still vote in significant numbers for the Democratic Party candidates. And I can't explain that. So I'll be curious, you know, as uh, as we go forward to look at the analyses, the exposes on how it came to be that in an unprecedented, historic, in a generationally unprecedented inflation, the Democratic Party didn't go down to a huge defeat. Actually, it's an interesting point. Now, again, I don't know the exact numbers, so don't hold me to it. But I think, if my memory is correct, Barack Obama did much worse in the 2010 midterm election than Biden. Oh, much worse. Much worse. Much worse. And I can't really explain that because I have no memory in 2010 of any catastrophic public event linked to the president that would have caused such a precipitous drop as happened for Obama. In fact, if you read Obama's memoir, he keeps saying, and so does David Axelrod in his memoir, that they had accomplished more in their first two years in office than any presidency uh, preceding them. So of course, it was a kind of discordant note between saying you accomplished so much 
but also acknowledging, as Axelrod did, that it was a complete catastrophe in the midterm elections. And so how it came to pass uh, that Obama fared worse than Biden when Biden was dealing with this out-of-control inflation is a perplexity to me. Well, isn't the answer Donald Trump? Donald Trump wasn't around when Obama suffered all those defeats. I think he, I think Democrats lost more than 60 seats in that first midterm. Mm-hmm. And now you have Trump and just a lot of people revile Trump for understandable reasons. And he picked some horrible candidate this time, uh, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz. I mean, this, I think, was a pretty big factor. And also maybe people just don't feel strongly personally about Biden as they do other uh, political leaders like Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. Maybe Biden isn't as polarizing for non-Democrats as some of these prior Democratic leaders are. We always have to look beyond our own tiny universe. I, I don't believe outside the woke liberal culture that Donald Trump was a significant factor in deciding the vote for people. Uh, the if you read the woke liberal, you know if you read their their papers or listen to their media, of course Donald Trump is an outsized factor. But I think for ordinary people who don't live in that you know, don't occupy that universe, I'm not convinced that that was a very big factor. Maybe in the case of Obama, it's possible. If you recall, the first two years there was of his presidency, there was no improvement in the economy. It came later, and he was coming out of the Great Recession. So it's possible it was the disappointed expectations of people that caused that catastrophe right. in the midterm. But I still say, you know, speaking for myself, and I mentioned this because a lot of the calculations of inflation do not include things like grocery expenses. They don't include that. So I'm speaking from the point of view of a very ordinary person and a minimal uh, income. And I feel, you know, I, I, the other day I said to myself, if I weren't a communist, I'd be voting Republican because this inflation is just <laughs> getting under my skin now. So I am curious what caused people to look past that. I think that one of the things is that the Republicans kind of did what the Democrats usually do, which is that they they kind of ran on not being as bad as the other guys, but they didn't really have any solutions for inflation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's possible. Axelrod was wrong. If you listen to him the past two days, uh, they, for those of you who don't know, David Axelrod was the campaign strategist for the Obama uh, candidacy and basically was behind the whole thing in terms of strategizing. He said that he predicted it would be very bad yesterday. And he said because the Democratic Party was doing very bad messaging on the economy. Well, it turned out he was wrong. It turned out he was wrong. Apparently, the messaging messaging wasn't as disastrous as I expected it to be. My general thoughts are. There's a lot of discontent out there. I find young people, because I do remain in contact with young people, either by teaching or by a very large correspondence with new people as well as former students. I I find young people very smart, uh, shrewd, 
not knowledgeable as I wish they would be when it comes to uh, history and facts, but still smart. And I think there's a real potential out there, but in order to uh, tap into that potential, there needs to be organization and there needs to be leadership. And those two things are seriously lacking. And I've spent a lot of time recently, many people might think it's a waste of time, and sometimes I think it's a waste of time. I say I'm too uh, too old to be worried about the revolution. I should be, <laughs> somebody called me up yesterday and promised me free funeral and cremation expenses. And <laughs> I hope this isn't someone you know. No, you know, it was one of those random calls. And I, 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 it was very sobering, even though as I, I insisted that it was premature. But I have sat down in recent weeks and probably from the foreseeable future. Uh, I've been rereading the classics of the socialist or Marxist tradition, uh, people like Trotsky and uh, people like Rosa Luxemburg. If you're interested, you really should look. There's several volumes that have just been published by Verso of Rosa Luxemburg's political writings, her economic writings and her political writings. She was an absolutely astonishing historical figure, a total enigma. It's like she dropped from Mars. She was a Polish, Jewish, middle-class, female cripple, and she became the leader of the far left of the German working class, a leader of the far left of the German working class. And they used to call her Red Rosa. And the leaders of the party, like August Babel, he once commented, every time I hear Rosa speak, I look down at my feet to see whether they're wading in blood. And I was reading her speech, her writings the other day. And I was thinking to myself, you know, there's a romantic vision of Rosa, and I've been caught up in that romantic vision. Uh, and But then I start to read it, and she was very tough. I mean, she's tough, hard-nosed uh, as any man. And But she's also hugely insightful about the whole question of how do you organize people? How do you organize, if you call yourself, they call themselves back then the social democrat, you know, we don't use that expression anymore. You could say socialist, a communist, a Marxist, whatever you want to call it. But what is the nature, if you are a radical person supporting the working class, how are you supposed to organize? Now, I'll tell you something. I was absolutely riveted. I sat in my chair, I have my night chair. I sat in it for hours. I was exhilarated and I was constantly comparing it to what happened during the George Floyd demonstrations, what happened with the so-called squad and Bernie when it came to Ukraine. And I, I felt I learned so much reading it. Like for, you may recall, you won't recall because it's not your generation, but Rosa Luxemburg was, famous for her statement, in August 4, 1914, the German Social Democratic Party, of which she was a member, they voted for war credits to the German government to begin World War I. 
So they voted basically what Bernie and the squad did, voted to give money to the government to fight a war which, as communists, they opposed. It was an imperialist war. They're not taking sides and so forth. And she famously said, on August 4, 1914, German social democracy turned into a rotting corpse. If you are in front of your Google, just put up uh, Rosa Luxemburg, rotting corpse, corpse, 1914. It was a famous line by her, which all of my generation of leftists, we all knew it. And I thought to myself, you know what? The day the squad and Bernie voted for war credits for the Ukraine, that whole enterprise called, you know, the progressive turned into a rotting corpse. And the whole job of leftists, as they understood it back then, the whole job of the left, uh, if you're a member of a political party, is to constantly point out the conflict of interest, what they call contradictions, but we can leave that aside, the conflict of interest between the ruling elite, the capitalist class, and yourself, to constantly point out their interests are not your interests. Their interests are not your interests. Don't be fooled. And for them, the hallmark of what you call class consciousness, the hallmark of class consciousness was seeing that fundamental conflict and cleavage between you, your class, your interests, and the ruling class. Now, let me be clear. That's exactly what Bernie did. He knew, he internalized, it was in his bone and in his blood, that tradition. And that's why day in and day out and day in and day out in both of his campaigns, he kept talking about there are a bunch of crooks. There are a bunch of crooks, big pharma, bunch of crooks. And he did exactly what an old time socialist would have done. Class consciousness, their interests are not your interests. He kept going on television. Could you imagine if you were in Goldman Sachs and you heard this guy on national television saying, Goldman Sachs, a bunch of crooks? He did exactly what he was supposed to do. But then what happened? When it came to the foreign policy, all of a sudden, the bunch of crooks became a band of angels. The bunch of crooks metamorphosed into a band of angels. You're telling me the same people who are cheating you day in and day out, stealing your wealth, stealing your labor, the same people are suddenly heartbroken by what's happening to the Ukrainian people? Are you telling me that? They're suddenly so concerned about the Ukrainian people. That guy, Sercioni, is that how you pronounce his name? Joe Sercioni, yeah. Sercioni? Yeah. He suddenly cared about, cares about 500 children who were quote-unquote kidnapped. There are 1 million children, 1 million children who in a concentration camp in Gaza and have been there for 15 years. And... No concern about them, but 500 children in the Ukraine. So to me, when I read them, 
when I read Rosa or I read Trotsky, who I've also uh, spent a lot of time rereading, all this is from my youth, and I'm revisiting it on the verge of my death, naturally. Um, the same people you're suddenly telling me, it's such a betrayal. It's such a betrayal of everything Bernie stood for domestically to now suddenly sell these people, sell these people as concerned about the fate of the people of Ukraine? Can anyone possibly believe that? Nancy Pelosi? Did you read Obama's tweet? We should vote for Democrats who look like us and represent us. Oh, yeah. Nancy Pelosi, yes. I live in exactly the same house on the e on the East Coast that she lives on in the West Coast. I hang out with exactly the same people. Yes, that's my community. I recognize it. I recognize it. She spent more on her facelifts than I have earned in my entire life. That's a fact. And I'll show you my social security. You know, if you get where uh, at a certain point, they give you all your earnings for every day since you began work. And you total it. And I can assure you not get so much. But if you total it, you won't get the same total as her facelift. And you're telling me these are the people that look like me? So Mama Bear? Mama Bear? Has anybody yet, has anybody yet put forth any explanation why in the midst of a conflict in the Ukraine, Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan? What was the point? What was the point? Except to stir up trouble. Except to stir up more trouble as if our, our planet doesn't have enough trouble to stir up a war with China. And for them to say nothing, nothing, not one word, not even Bernie saying, Nancy, I really, I really, uh, I'm really a little perplexed here. Why did you go to China? Why did you go to Taiwan? What prompted you to go to Taiwan? Nothing. Complete betrayal of that whole tradition. And in my opinion, it is worth studying that past because it gives you a, a clearer, I won't say a clear, a clearer, a clearer sense of what it means to be a leftist, what it means to be a radical what it means to be somebody who claims to be uh, fighting on behalf of the working class and for our, all of our futures, not just the working class. So for me, it's been uh, very valuable uh, to revisit that uh, uh, moment in my past, but now revisiting it with a new context, a new context, because what's called the left has just gone off the rails. It's gone off the rails. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Well, Norman, uh, I'm curious um, to hear your thoughts on the latest with Jeremy Corbyn, because he is a sharp contrast to Bernie Sanders and the squad. So like them at home, solid progressive politics, but he's also an internationalist and very consistent in applying the same progressive principles abroad as he does at home. And because of that, 
he was sabotaged uh, by members of his own party with a whole series of fake scandals, including this allegation that he was presiding over an anti-Semitism crisis inside his own party. And recently, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but there was a documentary on Al Jazeera uh, based on leaked files from inside the Labor Party, just Mm -hmm. showing some window into how the scam was perpetrated, where basically allegations of anti-Semitism were either fabricated or inflated to deliberately bring down Corbyn? Well, I was very involved at the time of the anti-Semitism orchestration against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. I knew, uh, I don't want to name them, but I knew key people inside the, the Corbyn campaign. And I was interviewed several times on you know, reasonably uh, mainstream programs. Well, I can't say mainstream but programs which had a broad reach. And I made, I kept saying, don't apologize. Don't apologize. There's no evidence that the Labour Party was harboring or encouraging or uh, turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism. It was not true. I said, don't apologize because it's not about anti-Semitism. It's about Israel. So don't apologize because they are not going to stop until you are removed. They are not going to stop until you are removed. Now, I want to be clear about the facts because I don't want to uh, mislead your listeners, not just to protect myself, which which is a consideration, but the more important consideration is not to mislead Uh, those who are listening to you. Number one, the campaign started with the organized Jewish community going after Jeremy Corbyn. And it was clear, as I said, it had nothing to do with anti-Semitism, which was just completely fabricated. I have read many studies. There are many good books on the subject right now, uh, including one that was published by Verso. There are many good books on the subject. So you'll, uh, for arguments, not for argument's sake, but for the purposes of this program, we'll just set aside the evidence. Those who want it, I can certainly point to it. There was no evidence of anti-Semitism. It was all about Israel. However, however, the Jewish community then became the tip of the juggernaut because it wasn't only the Jewish community that wanted to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. He had a radical domestic and foreign policy. So they, then the entire British elite, the entire British elite, from BBC to Sky News, from the Daily Mirror to The Guardian, the entire British elite unified behind this anti-Semitism allegation because they decide to run with it as a way to drive Jeremy Corbyn from office. That being said, namely, it really wasn't even, it wasn't about anti-Semitism, not just for the Jewish elite, or everybody used it. Those who didn't give a wit one way or another about anti-Semitism, they realized this is something you can run with. And so, you know, the, the Guardian was completely despicable. I would add, and I know it'll alienate people, uh, Mehdi Hassan was despicable. He joined in with Jonathan Friedland, who yeah. began, who began, who began the whole campaign against the Labour Party. He initiated it, Jonathan Friedland. 
he put out a joint letter condemning bigotry, including in the Labour Party, which was a flat-out lie. In any event, however, we have to be careful about the facts. Even though they all ran with the anti-Semitism, it was not, and I want to be clear about that, it was not the anti-Semitism that defeated uh, Jeremy, that charge, and defeated Jeremy Corbyn. But defeated it was the Brexit, where half of his party was for Brexit and half of the party was against it. It was a calculation by the thugs in the Labour Party leadership that if you can split the Labour Party on Brexit, they were going to lose. Because there had been a vote, the people voted out, and you had to respect their vote. Right. And they knew that if the Labour Party came out against Brexit, they would lose the election. So if you look at all the polling, I studied it pretty closely, I followed it closely. All the polling showed that the anti-Semitism charge was not a significant charge, except in one sense, except in one sense, that Corbyn revealed himself to be a weak leader. He didn't have backbone. He didn't say, we have a procedure to handle charges of anti-Semitism. If you have an allegation, send it to our complaints department and we will just handle the complaint. We'll address it. He just kept on retreating and retreating and retreating and retreating. And he ended up looking pathetic. And that was one of the, uh, that was a contributing factor. But the main factor was Brexit. You know, we don't want to, uh, when Jews deserve to be attacked, I will attack Jews. And Jews cause a problem, like I thought Ronald Lauder caused a very big problem in New York State. I don't think the former head of the World Jewish Congress and a close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, giving this guy Zeldin uh, $11 million, at least $11 million, uh, I, I, I consider that a problem. I consider that a problem. And I don't have a problem if somebody says, I think it's a problem that a Jew who has such loyalty to Israel is giving, uh, and the former head of the World Jewish Congress is basically determining the election. Now, that was not what I was saying. That was the New York Times was saying. The New York Times said he's going to buy the election. But the New York Times left out the Jewish part. They had one sentence uh, about the Jewish part. So when there is a Jewish malfeasance, I'm very happy to acknowledge it and point to it and not try to uh, euphemize it. But that's not what happened in uh, the UK. The interesting thing about the UK, in my opinion, was I said it at the time, this is really a dress rehearsal for what they're going to do to Bernie. Yep. But he never got that far because his uh, presidential bid was uh, sabotaged uh, much earlier. Uh, well, there was the Bernie bro allegation. This, there, were, this there were many allegations. idea that there was a toxic uh, right. culture or sexist culture inside yeah. of the Bernie movement. There were many allegations. If you remember Gloria Steinem, yeah. she said the women only support Bernie because they wouldn't be the the uh, there, the the, there was the Bernie bros. But up until that point, and we have to say it was an early point, when he was knocked out, uh, up until that point, the anti-Semitism in his ranks charge uh, hadn't loomed large. 
But it's, right. in my opinion, well, he would have been called a self-loathing Jew, right? As opposed it, to an anti-Semite. Oh yeah, it's also true, as you now mentioned, he would have had the uh, protection of being Jewish and being in his gestures and his mannerisms being manifestly Brooklyn Jewish. Whether it would have saved him or not, because the charges would, of course, have been about anti-Semites in his ranks. Yeah. Now, you know, originally right. with Corbyn, originally, it then escalated. But originally, they didn't claim Corbyn was an anti-Semite. They claimed that he was harboring, pampering, turning right. a blind eye to all these anti-Semites who had joined the Labor Party. Well, I think Corbyn, uh, I think Sanders would have uh, come out. I don't know how he would have fared, because Sanders is kind of like Jeremy Corbyn. I don't want to say this as a, a, a negative, necessarily. But he doesn't have the backbone to fight against friends, against yeah. colleagues. Uh, it's not in him. Now, in a way, it's a compliment to him. And it was the same thing with Jeremy Corbyn, that they, they are, in some ways, you could say soft, but soft is not necessarily a um, liability in the human being. But it doesn't work very well in politics. Right. Uh, and so I don't know how Bernie would have fared. For me, the most telling moment in the Bernie campaign was when he was debating Biden. It was just the two of them. And he says to Biden, Joe, he says, Joe, you remember when you made that speech saying that you wanted to, to cut Met, uh, Medicare? And he says, I never said that. And then Bernie says, but Joe, maybe you said that because you wanted to get the bill passed and it was part of the bill. Yeah, I know. But you said it. And Biden said, I never said that. You know, and he squints and looks. And Bernie just couldn't say. Bernie said, but it's all over the YouTube right. the speech that you gave. But Bernie didn't have it in him to say. To just call him a liar. liar. Right. What do you talk? He couldn't do that. Yeah, and he that was, was almost trying to coach him. Like, come on, like, come on, you gotta yeah. get ready. You're gonna face Trump. You might as well practice on. No, me. he was almost. He was making apologies for the vote, right? For the statement, but just to acknowledge it. But he, he couldn't was throwing do him it. a bone. And, 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 and yeah, was throwing him a bone. And that was Corbin. You know, he came off as weak, and then the whole thing turned into a disaster, because. Bernie understands radical politics enough that when he was repeatedly asked during the campaign, Bernie, how are you going to get this program through Congress? How are you going to get it? How are you going to get it through Congress? And Bernie said what any good radical says. He says, of course, I know it's going to be very, very tough. That's why we have to bring out people into the street. We have to bring out people into the street. We have to flood Washington with demonstrations, which is, of course, exactly what he was should have done. And if you read Rosa, that's what she keeps saying. You have to keep having the demonstrations, keep having the demonstrations. She said one of the purposes of the demonstrations is to raise class consciousness, to keep, you know, keep uh, fighting, keep escalating. But what happened? He gets killed. He goes to con he Biden gets elected, and then he just does everything behind closed doors. There are no demonstrations. Now, if you remember, 
during the campaign, he said, Obama said to me it was a mistake to dismantle his organization after he came to power, that the whole apparatus they had created for Obama's election. He said, Obama told me it was a mistake to dismantle it. Now, I don't believe Obama thought it was a mistake. Yeah, Obama wanted to get rid of it because now business as usual. I have Larry Summers, I have Timothy Geithner, I have Hillary Clinton, and uh, we're just Robert Gates, so we're going to just do business as usual. But the thing that struck me was Bernie did the same thing. He had a huge organization that mobilized for his candidacy. And then when Biden was elected, instead of using that organization to put pressure on Congress, he dismantled it. He did the exact same thing. And so it became so pathetic that they kept saying these two senators, Cinema and Mansion, Mansion, are blocking everything. I'm thinking to myself, Bernie, if you can't mobilize the popular force to overcome cinema and mansion, then how did you ever think you were going to implement your pro- your platform? Two senators, two pathetic senators, one a fashion, a clothes horse, and the other just bought out by the fossil fuel industry in Virginia. You couldn't stop them. So how are you ever going to implement your program? So there was a huge disconnect between what Bernie was promising in his platform and what he was promising to do, which was to bring out masses of people to force that program through Congress, and what he actually did. He just retreated to his old role as being a gadfly in Congress, working out behind the closed doors some sort of uh, program which then gets whittled down and whittled down and whittled down and whittled down. It's not radical politics. And he had the possibility, he had the possibility. Remember, my generation, not to praise it, just to speak factually, Every six months, we were going to literally going to Washington over the war in Vietnam. Every six months, mass mobilization, go to Washington, get in the bus, go to Washington. Every six months, those mass demonstrations, they figured significantly in the anti-war movement. They weren't everything. You know, there was a lot of local stuff being done, but certainly they marked climaxes. And as we all know, the March on Washington in 1963, it was a pivotal moment. And now you had a constituency. It was the constituency in my own city of New York, in Manhattan, in one at Washington Square Park. There were 25,000 people that came. The next week, the next week in Prospect Park, there were 26,000 people. Prospect Park's in Brooklyn. So you had 25,000 in Manhattan, 26,000 in Brooklyn. If you had made concrete demands, we are going to Washington to abolish student debt. 
We're going to Washington. And you brought a million, two million, who knows how many young people. It had possibilities. But all of that was thrown by the wayside. Everything, he just went back to business as usual. It was Bernie the gadfly in Congress. Uh, and it wasn't radical politics. So uh, as Aaron, well, Aaron wouldn't know because he's only read part of the book I just wrote. But throughout the book, I am full of praise for the Bernie campaign, full of praise, and for him personally. But you went that, to school with him. I know I didn't go to school with him. I went to the same school as him. He went yeah, to, you're younger. You're younger, uh, obviously. Yeah, much younger. <laughs> but um, uh, and he's in, uh, he lived right near me. You know, I pass his house every day when I go to. I teach at Brooklyn College, and along the way. Uh, is his house on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn. I'm, I have a lot of very positive things to say about Bernie, and I will never retract them. However, I think for a radical movement, you have to always do a balance sheet. You have to learn, learn lessons, learn lessons, learn lessons. My closest friend in the occupied territories, is, uh, Palestinian territories, I don't consider them occupied anymore. I should use the proper term. In the annexed Palestinian territories, his name is Musa Abu Heshesh. He was a real militant in the Communist Party and made a lot of sacrifices, he, his family, um, for uh, the Palestinian rights. And when Oslo came along in 1993, the Oslo Agreement, which uh, basically ushered in this new period of, of Palestinian collaboration with the Israeli government, I remember I asked him, he was very, he was shattered by Oslo because he could see where things were going. He was smart enough, much smarter than me, by the way. Uh, and I, I said to him, uh, preceding the Oslo Agreement, what was, what was called the was called the First Intifada, which was a mass uprising uh, of the Palestinian people, a, a nonviolent uprising of the Palestinian people against the Israeli occupation. And I said to him, uh, do you think anything good came of those six years? It began in 1987, December 7th, 1987, and then it ends in September 1993, September 13th, uh, 1993. I said, do you think anything came of it? And he looked and he said, lessons. We, 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 listen, we, we learn. He had these very narrow paths, these narrow contemplative eyes. And it's somebody who constantly assimilates the suffering, the hardship, but also the lessons, the lessons to learn. And so we have to be sober-minded. I'm not about to say, you know, oh, I told you Bernie was this and Bernie was that. No, Bernie was like most politicians, most uh, leftist politicians, not politicians. He was an ambiv ambiguous and ambivalent figure. He did, uh, in my opinion, there was nothing like it in my lifetime. Somebody going on national television and talking about that class struggle, that class conflict, and don't trust those people. They're all a bunch of crooks, which is what he kept saying. Uh, and naming names, naming, 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 naming names. Um, and that was, you know, when I read Rosa Luxemburg, I thought to myself, yeah, Bernie's an old-time leftist. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to raise class consciousness. So all praise to Bernie Sanders. But on the other hand, there are things that happen 
And we have to be frank as we uh, move on. Uh, some of the things, I curse him under my breath now for what he said after the uh, so-called uh, progressives withdrew the letter on the Ukraine. I was yeah. so angry. I was so, so angry. But that's the moments, the fits of anger. But then we have to have moments of a sober balance sheet. And in the sober balance sheet, uh, still, I would say, the the positive overwhelms the negative but the negative is surely there. And what's striking to me about the negative, the negative with Bernie is that it goes against his own principles. Sure. He was the same, he was the one that said we could never get anything through Congress unless we have the people out into the street. And if he says they're crooks at home, how do they suddenly become guardian angels abroad? They're the same people. Yep. The what same do you people. think it is? Do you think he's mistaken? He doesn't understand it? Is it a question of cowardice? Like, why is he on foreign policy? Well, let's be clear. Okay, I want to be clear about the record, though I don't know all the details. He was, of course, against the war in Vietnam, but at the time, the war in Vietnam was a popular cause. But, you know, when he joined it in the mid-1960s. Okay? So that didn't take any great either political acumen or political courage. The period when he was best known for his foreign policy uh, radicalness was during the Central American Wars when right. he supported the Sandinistas. But we have to also remember, I'm not, I, I'm not discounting it. I want to just put it in context. Those wars were led by Ronald Reagan. Right. It wasn't the Democrat in, in, in power. And it didn't take all that much political acumen or courage to be against the wars in Central America. It was a liberal cause. It was a liberal cause to oppose uh, those, those wars, uh, to oppose the uh, Contras and to oppose uh, the Duarte government in El Salvador. So he wasn't like off the spectrum. He wasn't even nearly off the spectrum. Uh, and the uh, wars in... Um, uh, uh, oh God, the Balt not the Baltic War, you know, in Yugoslavia and elsewhere. Yeah. He was bad. He was right. bad. Israel-Palestine, up until his campaign, up until his campaign in 2016, he was bad. He was bad. Yeah. But, you know, as many, as one person told me, and I, it stood with me, the remark, he said, Bernie grew the movement, but the movement also grew Bernie. And we shouldn't forget about that. And the Palestine cause had become for the left by that point, by that point, the Palestine cause had become a litmus test and a brand. It had become a litmus test and a brand by uh, 2016. So uh, he had to move. He had to move. Now, maybe his heart was also in it, but we you know it was a little different. On Ukraine, it would have taken a lot of courage. It would have taken a lot of courage, you know, because liberals support Ukraine, so-called progressives support the war in Ukraine. So he would have, for the first time, if he took a courageous position on that, he would have fallen off the map. And, and would, you know, exactly what happened to Brianna Joy Gray, he would have been just hounded. He would have been hounded. So was there an element of political calculation? I would say, as you know, with human nature, it's very hard to know when you do something because you believe in it, and when you do something when it's in your interest to believe it. Right. And 
I can't say with Bernie where calculation entered and where he actually believed it. I'm not sure. Speaking of Israel, Palestine, what are your thoughts on the uh, Israeli elections? The funny thing about the Israeli elections, every time a more more righteous government gets elected, the alarm bells start going off. But I remember, you know, when I first entered the Israel-Palestine conflict, it was in 1982 with the Israeli invasion of Lebanon on June 5th, I think, June 5th, 1982, uh, Israel invaded Lebanon. Now, at that time, the uh, Minister of Defense was a fellow named Ariel Sharon. Mm. And Ariel Sharon was known as the the Butcher of Beirut. That was his nom de plume, (laughs) nom de guerre, nom de guerre, Uh, the Butcher of Beirut. Well, by 2001 or 2002, when Sharon is elected prime minister, he's now being called a moderate. He was, he was called a moderate. He was for peace because the spectrum had moved so far over in Israel that now he's being called a moderate. So the spectrum is moving more and more and more and more over. Where, to my mind, I can't see any difference. First of all, I can't even remember who was elected when because they have elections every five days in Israel. So I can't even remember who is what, but where where really where's the left to go? The country's crazy. I, I said a long time ago, it's a lunatic state, it's a sugar state, it's a crazy state. And um so I don't really think it's gonna make much difference. The key factor is not the government. Now, I don't want to trivialize differences, but in this case, um, I think it's really the ultra-narcissism of small differences to make out distinctions between this government and the next, because right now Netanyahu is being touted as a moderate, and that he is sanctioning the presence of radicals in his cabinet. What about him? What about him? So I think the key factor is the Palestinian factor. And so far as I can say, and talking to people there, but not studying it closely now, because I was focusing on something else the past few years, uh, I don't see any any indication that the Palestinians are, so to speak, in a fighting mood, that the, the disappointments of the past 30 years have been so shattering that they've lost any commitment to collective struggle. The only caveat qualification I would put to that statement is, believe it or not, a lot of time has passed. Oslo was signed in 1993. That's already three decades ago, which means there's now a new generation. And I talk to people there who say, yes, for those of us who are in our 30s, we're not We've given up. But they say the younger generation, those in their 20s, they have not given up. So it's possible that that horrible uh, nightmare of the disappointments from the Oslo era, it's possible that it hasn't, hasn't impacted 
as much this new generation, and maybe they will find it in themselves to wage the battle. I don't believe, and it's not because I'm a pacifist, I don't believe for reasons of strategic and political calculation, I don't believe that armed struggle can possibly win there. So I was very pessimistic about the recent rebellions in certain of the Palestinian cities in Janine and Nablus. Uh, the only way a struggle can win there is if the one factor, and this was something that deeply touched me reading Rosa Luxemburg. She kept saying, the one advantage we have is numbers, numbers. You've got to reach more and more people. You're, you're up against this concentrated economic power, this concentrated political power, a economic and political power that's so organized and so ramified, and they have hundreds of years of experience in how to control the population. And in order to shatter that power, in order to pulverize it, you have only one tool in your chest, numbers. You've got to organize those numbers. And the same way the Palestinian people, I was even surprised. I was reading a document the other day. I was surprised at the numbers. They're actually higher than I thought. The people in the annexed territories who have no rights at all, namely uh, the West Bank and Gaza, they number now 5.3 million. For some reason, I still thought it hover, hovered around 4, 4, 4.2. Uh, but it's actually 5.3 million. And then you add in uh, the uh, 2 million in Israel. But let's just leave them aside for a moment. That's a lot of numbers. And one of the things, the most, uh, the most telling thing about the first intifada, and what I have most memories of, it, I lived there off and on in the summers uh, between 1987 and 93, 88 and 93, excuse me. The thing that was most noticeable is this was a mass uprising, a mass uprising, which means every person, I could even show you one day if I'm ever on your program live, I could show you pictures of two-year-olds, my best friend Musa, his son. His son is now a surgeon in Hebron. Two years old, you see him on the road, on the road, an army jeep passes, he picks up a rock and he throws it and he says, Jesh. Jesh means army. His father had been locked up during, uh, Musa had been locked up and it traumatized him, uh, the family. He's a very loving, he was a very loving, he is still a very loving farmer. My point being, they were up against this mass civilian uprising. And Israel is not a big country. So that meant when you came into the occupied territories, I see it in my mind's eye now. You saw these like 65 and 68-year-old Israelis with a paunch, ball, and they're wearing the army fatigues. They had, to, they had to mobilize their whole reserve army to control this population. So if 
the Palestinians exploit their numbers, I think they still have a chance. But if it's reserved to just some armed people and everybody else is an uh, observer, even a sympathetic observer, they can't win. That's what happened in the second intifada. The Hamas was carrying out the suicide bombings, and truth be told, Palestinian people supported it. I was there. I argued with them. I didn't agree with them, uh, but they supported it overwhelmingly. But they weren't participants. And when you have a handful of militants, Israel's security system with the collaborators, the whole Palestinian Authority, eventually they track them down. They track them down. So you can't win. If ever, if ninety five percent of the population are just observers, even sympathetic observers, they have to be activists and participants. Numbers that's what count. That was one of the things that struck me reading Gandhi. Gandhi talked about the advantages of nonviolence over violence as a practical matter, not a moral issue. And he said one of the advantages which had never struck me. He said one of the advantages is when you have armed resistance, it's just the men. But he says, when you have nonviolent resistance, you can tap into the women and children. And that was, you know, if you remember the civil rights movement, there would have been no civil rights movement and no victories without the women and children. It would never have happened. They tapped into all their numbers. So until Palestinians reach that point again, I'm skeptical that they can, uh, I don't want to even say anymore, end the occupation because I don't think it's legally correct. It's an annexation. I don't think they can end, I won't even say end the annexation. I would just say, I don't think until they tap, uh, they exploit their numbers, they can gain their full human rights or legal rights uh, in Israeli society. What form that will take, I have no idea. It could be two states, it could be one state, it could be a federal state, it could be a binational state. I have no idea. I can't predict the future. But one thing I can say with a certain amount of confidence, though I'm fallible, I could be wrong, I don't believe it can be done uh, through armed struggle there. Right. Uh, I, I can't. Even in Vietnam, even in Vietnam, one of the claims that the U.S. Army, to justify all its atrocities, one of the part claims it made was, we can't separate out the Viet Cong from the Vietnamese people. Because of what was called the Viet Cong, which is a South Vietnamese fighter, they were home by day. They were in their village by day, and they went out to fight by night. Because the Viet Cong were the people. They were the people. Right. So that's the, the, the strategy, I think, is the only one that really can win. I will support the armed resistance, absolutely. I, I would never say you don't have the right to use weapons. Of course you do. But uh, I don't think as a strategic or practical matter, political matter, let alone see, leave aside the moral issue, uh, I don't think it can succeed. And to hear the next full hour with Norman Finkelstein, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.